this morning we're looking at the idea of revolutionary worship. Now, imagine if you would for a moment that you go out for a walk in the evening, and as you're coming back to where you live, you turn around a corner and you find yourself suddenly in the midst of a, a fight that's in process. And not just a small little fight, but literally scores of people who are spilled out into the streets fighting with one another. This is actually what happened on the August 2nd, 2013, to this gentleman named Ray Winstrand in St. Paul, Minnesota. He was out walking and he came back to his house. And as he was coming back, he turned around a corner of his neighborhood and there was literally this large fight going on and trying to get a work around it to get to his house. He was actually taken and he was beaten and he was stripped and he was left for potential, in a potentially fatal condition. And we think, gosh, how can that happen? A person just walking along and suddenly just walk into a fight. Well, that happened to me once. I actually walked into a fight. It wasn't a fight on my street in my neighborhood with scores of people literally going at each other. But uh, I walked, I, I was invited to, 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 to serve on a church staff, and I walked right in the middle of a major fight in that church. It's what we call worship wars, okay? There was literally fighting going on over worship styles. And uh, this, this is kind of faded too, but if you, if you just kind of look at this picture sort of as a depiction of this fight, you see the gentleman standing there, and he represents what in this church was the traditional choir, where there was over 60 people involved in this choir, and the choir for decades was lauded as the centerpiece of worship for the church. But two years earlier, key leaders in the church instituted what would be called a contemporary liturgical service. That could be represented by the lady that you can't see very well in the picture. But, uh, but they, they, they began a contemporary liturgical service, and they were able to get the prime time on Sunday morning the prime Sunday morning slot for the contemporary worship service. This infuriated the people who were in the choir. They felt like they had been snubbed. They had been rejected. One choir member looked me in the face and said, what do they think we are? Chopped liver? Worship wars. Interestingly enough, Jesus himself ran into something of a worship war in John chapter 4. You remember the story. He was thirsty, he was tired, he'd been traveling with his disciples, and he stayed at the well while his disciples went in town to get some food. And a woman came along, and he asked her for a drink of water. And in the midst of their conversation, she brought up a decades-old worship war after he asked her for this drink of water. Let's read the story about it in John chapter 4. It says, he came to a town of Samaria called Sychar, near the field that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, so Jesus, worried as he, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well. It was about the sixth hour, and there came a woman of Samaria to draw water, and Jesus said to her, give me a drink, for his disciples had gone into the city to buy food. And the Samaritan woman said to him, how is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria, for Jews have no dealings. Whoop, you cut that, that part got cut off, didn't it? It says Jews had no dealings with Samaritans. There was a major conflict culturally between the Jews and the Samaritans. And here Jesus is not only speaking to a Samaritan, but he's speaking to a Samaritan woman, which was 
forbidden by the Jews. Okay? And Jesus answered her and said, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw water with and the well is deep. Where are you going to get that living water? You have to know that the Jacob's well was literally a hundred feet deep. And so she is just thinking very pragmatically here. How are you going to get the living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock. Jesus said to her, everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty forever. For the water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water, welling up. Again, that was cut off by the spring of water welling up in their soul to eternal life. And the woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you're a prophet. Interesting response. So this is where the worship word comes in. Our fathers worshiped on this mountain. But you say, you Jews that is, say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to go worship. And this was a dispute that was going on for literally centuries. Where are you supposed to worship? Where's the proper place to worship God? And Jesus said to her, woman, believe me. The hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is here now when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. The woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming. He was called the Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. And Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. Let's pray together. Father in heaven. Pray, Father in heaven, that as we look at this passage and think about revolutionary worship, that you would just grip our hearts with that affection that Jesus Christ has poured out upon us and that you would cause us to want to respond with with praise of you, even this morning in your name. Amen. So, what we're speaking of this morning is revolutionary worship. And I would like to suggest that this passage teaches us That revolutionary worship is a spiritual activity. God is spirit and those who worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. It's a spiritual activity of transformed persons adoring Jesus individually and with other believers. Revolutionary worship is the spiritual activity of transformed persons adoring Jesus individually and with other believers. It's an attitude of heart and mind. Now, You might notice there that I'm not referring to liturgies or practices, particular practices or forms of worship. Now, those kinds of things are important. I'm not putting those things down or saying that don't don't be attuned to those things. As a matter of fact, let me just flag for you that uh, in a few weeks on March 16th uh, at Berry College, there's going to be a speaker named Jamie Smith. And Jamie is going to be coming. And Jamie has been one of the most articulate writers on the importance of understanding forms and liturgies, that those kinds of things literally form us in our worship. So I'm not laying those things down. However, 
if we mess up in our understanding about Jesus, and if, if we're not dealing with worship with a proper attitude, then regardless of the forms or the styles that we use, our worship is empty and it's not acceptable to God. So let's just pause for a moment and think about this idea of revolutionary worship. The first thing I want us to think about is this, that human beings are made as worshiping creatures. We are made to worship. Now, you can just uh, assert this on the basis of pure observation. Literally, throughout the, throughout the time of humanity, there's always been people worshiping. And humans have always worshiped something. In diverse cultures and over thousands of miles, people are worshiping. It's something which you can observe and, and acknowledge. And yet in our passage this morning, we clearly see that we are worshiping creatures because the conversation came to the issue of worship in John 4.20. Our fathers worshiped on this mountain, but you say that Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. But the fact is, is people are worshipers. It's assumed in that verse. We can also see it in Romans chapter 1, verse 20. It says, his inv- Paul's writing and it says, God's invisible attributes, his eternal power, his divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since creation of the, the creation of the world and the things that have been made. What Paul's saying here is, human beings are worshiping creatures and they see, they can, they can perceive God's invisible attributes, his eternal power and his divine nature. They can be clearly perceived And as people do that, they worship in various forms and ways. You are going to worship something and somebody. As a matter of fact, years ago, Bob Dylan, who I think is one of the the cultural prophets of our time, wrote a a song which puts this into play. And it's way too long for us to hear the whole song. It's over seven different verses. But we're going to listen just for a moment to a couple of verses from his song, You've Got to Serve Somebody. You've Got to Serve Somebody. Serve somebody. Serve somebody. 
So Bob Dylan says you've got to serve somebody. The real question this morning for us is who are we going to serve? He says, you may serve the devil, you may serve the Lord, but you're going to serve somebody. Who or what are we worshiping today? The second thing I want us to see is that revolutionary worship is worship that's in the spirit and in truth. As John 4.23 says, the hour is coming and is now here. When true worshipers will worship the Father, And we'll worship him in spirit and in truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. What does it mean to worship God in the spirit? Now, lots of times when we hear that phrase, we think it must be the Holy Spirit. But actually, if you look carefully at the grammar in that passage, it's not saying you worship the Father in the Holy Spirit, even though the Holy Spirit obviously is involved in being with us and leading us to worship. But what this is actually saying is, that the Father is looking for spiritual worship, not just outward forms, but worship that's happening within the context of our souls. What does that mean? Well, first of all, what it means, it begins with literally a revolution in our souls. When Jesus was speaking to this woman, he said, the water that I will give will become a spring of water welling up into eternal life. Now, whether you call it being, being embraced or taken on by the, by, the, by the affections of Jesus, or you ter- use the term born again, what Jesus is saying here is, something's got to happen within your soul for you to worship properly. There's got to be a transformation that happens within you. And so he says to Nicodemus, you must be born again. He says, you must have this water welling up within you. There must be a transformation, what the scriptures call regeneration. Where God literally comes and invades your soul, invades your body, and takes you over, and you become a servant of the living God. And without that revolution in our souls, we can't worship properly. Revolutionary worship also not only means a revolution has happened in our soul, but worship that's authentic. And I, I struggled with finding the right word for this, but the idea is, like in Romans chapter 8, verses 15 and 16, Paul is talking about the work of the Spirit within us. And he says, you have received the spirit of adoption as sons. He's saying that you've experienced this revolution in your heart. You've experienced this work of the Spirit, whereby now we cry out, Abba, Father. He says, now we are drawn to the Father. We worship him. We cry out, Abba, Daddy, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. You see, this is authentic worship where the Spirit of God within us is crying out to the Father and causing us to worship Him. And then when we gather together with other people who also understand Jesus and know Jesus, we seek to follow Him and we worship together, crying out together. And and there's a resonance that takes place in our souls with other believers as we resonate to worship the Father. And so D.A. Carson, who is a professor up in Chicago, Put it this way, he said, what's at stake in worship is is authenticity. Sooner or later, Christians tire of public meetings that are profoundly inauthentic, regardless of how well or how poorly arranged, directed, or performed. So revolutionary worship is in spirit and in truth. Let me give you an example of what I mean by this authentic worship. Once we experience the regeneration of our souls this revolution in our souls, we're looking and desiring to worship him in an authentic place. 
the Lord brought me to himself when I was a snot-nosed little seventh grader, okay? And uh, slowly but surely, my, when we moved to Washington, D.C., my parents chose a church, and I wouldn't recommend this way of choosing a church. They chose a church where their kids knew other f- new friends and where we just enjoyed ourselves in Sunday school. That was the only criteria. And so we went to a church, quite honestly, that was as dead as a doornail, spiritually speaking. And uh, when, I came to, when the Lord brought me to himself in seventh grade, I slowly but surely uh, would, would, would go to with my parents to church, but I'd, I'd start going to Sunday school over at the church because I, I was, I came, the Lord brought me to himself in a program at a church called Fourth Presbyterian Church. And, uh, and so I would go there for Sunday school, then my parents would pick me up, and I'd go over to our family's church back and forth. And that kind of happened for a period of time until Easter of my eighth grade year. And it just, it just stood out with me because here's Easter Sunday morning. And instead of going to Sunday school that morning, I said, I'm just going to go to church at Fourth Pres before my parents picked me up. And I went to church, and there wasn't anything unique or unusual about the form of worship. It was a traditional Presbyterian church with the choir going down the aisle, and the pastors were in robes and the whole bit. However, there was life going on in that church. The pastor got up in front of the congregation on Easter Sunday morning, and he said, Christ is risen. And the people responded, he is risen indeed. And then the organ came in and they began singing, Jesus Christ is risen today, alleluia. And everybody was standing and singing at the top of their lungs. You could tell they believed that Jesus was alive. He was resurrected and they were celebrating on Easter Sunday. And then my parents picked me up and we went over to the other church. People walked in very quietly. They sat down. No one talked to each other. The pastor got up and gave a call to worship that nobody really heard or understood. Then we stood and sang, Jesus Christ is risen today. Hallelujah. And I thought to myself, wow, what a difference. And candidly, the pastor got up Easter Sunday morning and didn't give one word about the resurrected Jesus. Not one word. Now, I was only an eighth grader, but I walked out of there and I said, man, what a difference. Life and death. Light and darkness. Because with those believers, we resonated the gospel together through the Holy Spirit. And what Jesus is saying here is that worshiping him in spirit and in truth is authentic worship that is spiritual in nature. What does it mean, truth? What does truth mean in that phrase? Worshiping in the truth. Well, it can mean many things. And I could dive into lots of different avenues in this, but one thing is preeminent above all else when you think about worshiping in the truth. And that is worshiping means worshiping Jesus. Worshiping Jesus. Now, this is really radical. To us, we don't think it's such a big deal. But you have to understand, in the early church, when you said Jesus is Lord, well, in the, in the only people who were allowed not to say Caesar is Lord in the Roman 
in the whole Roman territory were the Jews. They gave the Jews an exception. Everyone else was required to say, Jesus is Lord. I mean, excuse me, Caesar is Lord. And if you would say, Jesus is Lord, you could be killed. So it was a radical statement to say, Jesus is Lord. And among the Jews of that day, it was also a radical statement. You see, Deuteronomy 6, 13 and 14 says, you should worship only the Lord God. And this is the conviction of the Jews to this day, and this is the conviction of Muslims. You do not worship anyone but to the Jews, Jehovah God, Allah to the Muslims. Okay? And to say that we're going to worship Jesus was anathema, was heretical. And yet, in John 4, 6, Jesus says to the woman at the well, I who speak to you am the Messiah. I am the Messiah. And interestingly enough, as you go through the Gospels, you discover that Jesus was worshipped all throughout the Gospels. He was worshipped at his birth by the wise men. They brought those gifts and it says they worshipped him. He was worshipped by his disciples and others. And there's just a couple of passages. I mean, remember when Jesus got out of the boat? I mean, when Jesus was walking in the water and he told Peter to come out of the boat and Peter came out and then they, they walked back into the boat? The response of the disciples was to worship him. When Jesus healed a man born blind in John 9, the response of the man born blind was to worship him. And Jesus, in both of those situations, received their worship. Even after his resurrection, of course, he was worshiped by the disciples. A unique difference in Christian worship is that we worship Jesus. Revolutionary worship is spiritual And it focuses on Jesus Christ. Revolutionary worship. What are you about in your worship? In spirit? Are you resonating in your soul this morning with the words that have been sung and the scriptures that have been read and hearing about God's truth? In truth, is Jesus why you're here this morning? This is revolutionary worship. Different from all other worship styles, all other worship attitudes throughout the rest of the world. Jesus is Lord and deserves to be worshipped. Jesus is not only worshipped in spirit and truth, but this passage also teaches us that worship is something which is done both personally and corporately. What do I mean by personal worship? I mean like Romans chapter 12, verse 1 is only one of many, many passages that could be quoted where Paul is speaking to believers and he's saying, Our, we are called as individual followers of Christ to worship Jesus personally and individually. And so he said, I, I challenge you to present your bodies as literally a living sacrifice. And he says, that is spiritual worship. Individuals, each one of us, if we are followers of Christ, are called to dedicate our bodies to the Lord as a living sacrifice, and he says, this is individual worship. And the question that we have to ask ourselves as we hear this is, when and how am I taking time to worship personally? This is a distinction which sets Christians apart. That we are called to worship God by dedicating our bodies to him, by taking time to pray to him, by talking to him, 
by reading the scriptures, by worshiping him. As a matter of fact, you can take the worship experience you have here on Sunday morning that's very carefully thought through the kinds of hymns that we sing and, the, and, and thinking through the different prayers that we have. And you can use that as an example of how you can worship individually during the week, using different prayers and different forms in a similar way. That's just one way you can do it. But obviously using the scriptures, praying, singing, worshiping God as individuals. But then also not just individually, but we're called to worship corporately. And these are just a series of verses from Acts and Hebrews. The Hebrews passage says, don't neglect meeting together, but encourage one another. Christian worship is always not just an individual activity. It's a corporate activity. It's something which we do together. Now, there's an attitude which is clearly seen today in our culture. And it's totally understandable. It's something like this. I love Jesus, but I can't stand the church. I love Jesus, but I can't stand the church. And quite honestly, I understand. Why? Because the church is made up of a bunch of broken people like me. And broken people can hurt each other. And broken people can say unkind things to each other. And they can be mean to each other, even when they don't want to be mean. And so I can understand how people get turned off with the church and say, oh, those are just a bunch of hypocrites. That's right. Every one of us are a bunch of hypocrites. The church is a gathering of broken people, not perfect people. We ought to be repenting to one another and confessing our sins to one another and acknowledging the fact that we don't have it together all the time. There's only one hero in this business, and that's Jesus. The rest of us are a bunch of flunkies. And yet God calls us to gather together as his loved people to worship and to encourage and to stimulate one another to love and good deeds. I have a friend who's a pastor up in Chattanooga. He put it to me rather dramatically at one time. As a matter of fact, kind of coarsely, but I think he really made a point. He said this. He said, Bob, the church is a whore. But she's your mother. And you don't abandon your mother. You don't abandon your mother. Should we be careful in choosing a church? Absolutely. Is what we believe and how we worship critically important? Absolutely. But remember, the church is full of broken people. And you'll never find a perfect church until you're in heaven with Jesus. We're called to worship him individually corporately, in spirit, and in truth. Yes, the church is a revolution. And we're called to be revolutionaries. And the revolution is seen in who and how we worship. This was driven home to me just a few weeks ago. Janet and I were driving home from the YMCA, and we said, oh, we have to stop at the CVS up here on Turner McCall to to get something. So we pulled in, and she, she was driving, and so I jumped out of the car, and, uh, and I was going into the CVS, but I had a hard time getting into the CVS because there was this, there was this elderly African-American gentleman, must have been at least in his upper 70s, and he was walking slowly through the door. And so I had to kind of stand there while he was working through the door, and finally he got through the door, and I kind of started to sort of make my way around him. 
And he saw that I had been behind him, and he said, oh, I'm so sorry. I, I blocked the door, and I looked at him, and I said, oh, that's, that's no worries. No, don't worry about that at all. And he said, well, God bless you. Now, at that point, I did something which I never would ever expect myself to do. He said, God bless you. And I looked at him, and I said, well, you know, God really has blessed me. Uh, I, the Lord brought me to himself when I was in seventh grade, and, and he's been blessing me ever since then as I've been learning to, to walk with Jesus. And he looked at me, and he got a smile on his face, and he said, you know, the Lord brought me to himself back in 1962 when I was working in a hospital in New York City. And I said, really? Praise God. And we started talking together for a few minutes, and then finally we, we left, and, 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 and I said, well, I don't know if I'll ever see you again, brother, but I know I'll see you in heaven. And he smiled and said, here, there, up in the air. <laughs> Fellow revolutionaries, because of whom we worship. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, Dylan said it, you got to serve somebody. Lord Jesus, you have done a revolution in our souls. Because you have brought us to yourself, Lord, you've called us to worship you in spirit and in truth, together and individually. Oh, Lord Jesus, I pray that Rome would know that we are Christians by our love for you and our love for one another. I pray that they would know we are Christians by the way that we worship. Oh, Lord, teach us to worship you in spirit and in truth. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.